Good morning. May it please the court, I am Sarah Martin. I represent the appellant Derek Smith. Mr. Smith was convicted of first-degree felony murder following a jury trial in Hennepin County. I raised four issues in my brief. Today I'd like to discuss the admission of other bad acts evidence and the court's refusal to grant a continuance following the state's late disclosure. I understand that under the rules of civil appellate procedure 11203, my duty to maintain confidentiality regarding the fourth issue I raised extends to oral argument, and for that reason, I would like to rely on my brief for that issue. The other bad acts evidence pervaded the trial in this case. Looking to the transcript of roughly 400 pages of testimony, more than 70 pages, and a good portion of the state's closing argument was devoted to inflammatory Spriegel evidence that Mr. Smith had participated in a first-degree murder in Scott County a month after Amber's shooting, that he had shot a man over five hours before Amber's murder, and that he had shot a police officer after fleeing the Scott County murder scene. The other bad acts evidence were not relevant or material. The evidence did not relate to any consequential disputed fact. Looking first at the Scott County first degree murder, the basis at trial was to, um, uh, to present it uh, for common scheme or plan, or to show a relationship between the co-defendants. Neither of these um, bases were um, sufficient for admitting it at trial. Um, going first to the relationship between the co-defendants, um, there was really no disputed fact that the relationship, the, the co-defendants had a close relationship. Um, Ms. Wahab testified extensively about their relationship and the defense did not challenge that in any respect. Counsel, did that piece of Spriegel evidence corroborate Ms. Wahab's testimony? No, Your Honor, that piece of evidence did not corroborate um, Ms. Wahab's testimony for a few reasons. First of all, um, the, uh, the two incidents were not sufficiently similar um, to have any corroborative value. This court in Ness and in Clark um, raised the concern that if um, offenses are not sufficiently similar, um, there's a more likelihood that they will be used for propensity evidence, which is, certainly could have happened in this case. And they weren't sufficiently similar because um, the, the two offenses were not markedly similar, which is what this court requires. Um, the two offenses um, were different in that the Hennepin County case um, was really a crime of opportunity. Um, it was, um, at least the allegation is, that the co-defendants met Mr. Ambers at a gas station, found out that he was a, um, a drug dealer, and then hatched a plan to rob him right then. The case in Scott County, um, by contrast, um, it involved extensive planning. Ms. Jock went there and um, videotaped and took photographs um, of the, the scene. And um, in that case, she was really the planner of the offense. Um, so there's a few reasons there. So first, the offenses themselves were very different, and the participants' roles in the two offenses differed as well. What about, um, when, you, when you talk about corroboration of uh, the Wahab testimony, I'm wondering if the inadvertent phone call is a pretty significant corroborating factor here. A corroborating factor, and, and that's getting to the sufficiency of the Correct. evidence issue, yes. of course. Um, I don't believe that that is a... Um, I mean, I look at that and it seems to it seems to corroborate timing and things like that, and that could be significant here because some of the other events occurred earlier. 
This court has made clear that, um, that corroborating evidence needs to do two things. It needs to restore the faith in um, the accomplice's testimony, um, but then it also needs to do something um, that, that points directly at the defendant's guilt in the case. And that piece of evidence certainly did not do that. Um, it, it suggested that yes, Ms. Wahab was in the vehicle um, shortly before um, Mr. Ambers was killed, but it does nothing to suggest that Mr. Smith had any role in it. Um, accomplice testimony, um, again, it must be corroborated by independent evidence um, to support a conviction. So it's not enough to establish that the crime simply took place in a manner consistent with the testimony of the accomplice. Um, there must be proof connecting the defendant to the crime. And this is really due to an accomplice's motive to fabricate, especially when as here, they receive a very favorable um, plea agreement in exchange for their cooperation in the case. Um, this recognizes the fact that accomplices are in a unique position to be able to manipulate facts. And it also, um, in the um, law review article I cited in the brief, um, Soft Words of Hope, um, it says that accomplices can be corroborated in minor details um, and still be lying about important aspects about the defendant's um, participation in the crime. So for that reason, um, the accomplice testimony um, needs to be corroborated in both ways. One, to um, reaffirm um, the accomplice's credibility, and then second, to um, point to the defendant's guilt directly. Counsel, what impact does the cell site location information have? How does that help us or hurt us? Um, well, there's two, um, there's, there's, there's two um, types of the cell site location. Um, one shows that Ms. Wahab was driving around um, consistent with what she testified to. But again, that is just testimony that shows that Ms. Wahab was, um, was credible in her story that she drove around with Mr. Ambers after they left the gas station, but it does nothing to point to the guilt of Mr. Um, Smith in this case. Counsel, you've mentioned once here, and I, I think a couple of times in your brief, that Ms. Wahab, um, uh, she had a plea deal, obviously, with the state. There's almost a suggestion that because of that plea deal that our, we should take a more rigorous look or there's a more rigorous test for corroboration. And I want to make sure that you're, what you're suggesting, or is that just simply another factor in, 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 your, in your view? It is simply another factor. Um, in Mathiasen, I believe, this court um, talked about the fact that um, when you look to the totality of the evidence, um, the, the quantum of corroborating evidence um, differs. Um, and when you have a case where someone um, has a, um, a motive to testify falsely, that is certainly one thing that should be taken into consideration. Counsel, does it matter here that, um, from my understanding of the record, that um, she had given a statement to the police before she had any, a consistent statement to the police before she had any plea deal. Uh, Doesn't she, that undercut that factor? I don't know that it necessarily undercuts the factor. Um, I mean, she certainly knew that she was involved um, at that point and certainly had a, um, a, a motivation to shift responsibility away from herself um, and toward other people.
the state pointed to a few other pieces of evidence um, suggesting corroboration, and each of those items merely um, corroborated um, Ms. Wahab's testimony in regards to the circumstances of the crime. Um, for example, um, uh, Wahab's testimony that they went to Amber's sister's house was confirmed by Ms. Henderson. Again, that is just evidence that shows that um, they went to the places Ms. Wahab said that they did following um, after they left the gas station, um, but it does nothing to connect Mr. Smith to the crime. Um, Jonte Robinson's um, testimony regarding the close relationship between Smith and Patterson and Jacques. Um, Robinson didn't really testify about a close relationship. He testified about what their acts were um, in the Scott County. Um, but it's important to note even that Mr. Robinson did not portray um, Mr. Smith as the ringleader in that case. So that shouldn't be used to corroborate um, the fact that he was a ringleader in the Hennepin County case. Um, Smith's statement to Mr. Patterson about not to not do what he did last time. Um, first of all, I think that's too vague to be sufficiently corroborative. And um, even if it is, um, even if we assume that it refers to Mr. Amber's murder, it does not indicate Mr. Smith's involvement in that murder. It only indicates that he knew about that murder. So it's not corroborative about the Hennepin County murder. The evidence in this case merely corroborates that the crime was committed in a manner consistent with Wahab's testimony. It does not point to the guilt of Mr. Smith and his conviction should be reversed on that ground. Returning to the Spriegel evidence, um, the state um, asked for the Scott County murder um, to come in as common scheme or plan. And um, like I said, there was no marked similarity. It shouldn't have come in for that basis. Uh, the Scott County incident was also admitted for the purpose of illuminating the relationship between the co-defendants. Um, but again, it's important to note that the relationship or the roles um, that the participants played, they differed. So it doesn't really um, illuminate what Mr. Smith might have done in the Hennepin County case um, if his role in the Scott County case is completely different. It's also um, not admissible to provide context for that um, inculpatory or somewhat inculpatory comment. The comment, don't do what you did last time, um, again, that does not point to Mr. Smith's involvement in the case, um, only that he had knowledge of it. And it's certainly not a basis um, to admit such highly prejudicial uh, evidence. The next piece of evidence was the shooting. Does the, uh, does the comment suggest that maybe Mr. Smith and Mr. Patterson had been involved in a previous robbery? I think that the state's theory is that he's referring to the Embers murder. Um, I think that it, it to the extent which that was a it is, Which was a right. felony murder, it was right. in connection with a robbery, right? Right, yes. And I would say even assuming that that is what it is referring to. I think it's too vague to, to be sure that that's what he's referring to, but even if it is, uh, it is not corroborative of Mr. Smith's participation in that murder. Um, it could simply be that he knew about that. How did the evidence come in as far as that comment? Who was the witness? 
Well, the witness, um, that's another interesting point. The witness who testified about that um, was um, Dante Robinson, who is a uh, co-defendant in the Scott County murder. And um, he obviously has an incentive to um, make Mr. Smith look as guilty as possible. Um, in exchange for his testimony in Hennepin County, the county attorney was writing a favorable letter uh, to the Scott County attorney um, to be taken into consideration for his plea in that case. Moving next to the Young shooting, this was admitted for the purpose of showing access to a firearm, placing him at the scene hours before the Amber shooting, and to show his relationship with Ms. Jacques. And it's not admissible for any of these purposes. Access to firearms, um, especially where Mr. Smith was not the shooter in Mr. Amber's case, is not a basis to admit um, highly prejudicial spiegel evidence. Now, perhaps if the same gun had been used in both cases, um, it would have been relevant. Perhaps if Ms. Wahab had said, um, I saw um, Mr. Smith shoot Young, and then he handed over the gun to Mr. Patterson, um, who was the shooter in the Amber's case, perhaps it would have been relevant. Um, I think the state's theory of the case was in both shootings, a revolver was used because there were not um, uh, cartridges recovered at the scene or shell casings rather. Um, what's your response to that? That's simply not sufficient. It's, it's, not, um, it's not some sort of a signature type weapon. Um, first of all, I mean, it's, it's an assumption that's made that it's a revolver in both cases because there were no shell casings. Um, but um, even if it was uh, shown that they were both revolvers, both um, used revolvers, revolvers are uh, commonly available um, in this country. So there's no reason to believe that it was the same gun used in both shootings. The Officer Carlston shooting, um, the shooting of the officer after leaving the Scott County murder scene was even more prejudicial um, than the others. I, I can't imagine anything more prejudicial than shooting at a police officer. It was offered to show access to firearms and relationship of the parties, um, and neither was a valid purpose. Again, access to firearms. Counsel, let me ask you, did, um, did um, Mr. Smith ask for that to be sanitized? He did not ask for that to be sanitized. Does he have any um, burden to do so? I don't think he does have a burden to do so. I have not seen Spriegel cases sanitized, um, like impeachment cases. Um, in an impeachment case, obviously, it can be sanitized because it's just the fact of the felony um, that relates to credibility. Um, the, here, the defense objected to the evidence coming in at all, and um, the question is, was it error for the court to admit it? Was a limiting instruction given? A limiting instruction was given, yes. How effective do you think, lim how effective do you think limiting instructions are? In this case, I don't believe it was sufficiently, um, it was sufficient. And also this court in Strauman um, suggested that if, a, um, if evidence comes in erroneously, the instruction needs to be curative and not cautionary. So here, evidence that shouldn't have come in came in and the jury was given an instruction expressly telling them how to use it. Um, so it certainly didn't rectify the harm in this case. 
even if one or more of the um, Spriegel incidents were marginally relevant, they were far outweighed by the prejudice. The evidence was highly prejudicial in this case, with another first-degree murder, shooting at an unarmed civilian, and shooting at a police officer. They were each highly prejudicial in themselves, but the, um, the, the cumulative effect of it was devastating to the defense. Mr. Um, Smith was painted as a man who had a propensity toward violent crimes involving guns. And there's a reasonable possibility that the um, other bad acts evidence affected the verdict. Now, to determine that, this court looks to the entire trial record. And it's telling here that the state in its brief really doesn't argue harm. It, it only argues that the evidence was admissible. Um, and that's perhaps because the harm is clear if they shouldn't have come in. The evidence was very weak, tying Mr. Smith to the actual offense in this case. Um, there is no DNA or ballistic evidence. Um, we really have one accomplice's testimony, um, a video showing Mr. Smith and Mr. Ambers talking more than an hour before the shooting, um, and phone records showing that the two exchanged contact information. While the jury was given a cautionary instruction, the overwhelming amount of testimony in this case, and then also the prosecutor's reliance in closing argument. Um, in closing argument, the prosecutor um, at length recounted the circumstances of the Scott County murder and um, encouraged the jurors to use it for common scheme or plan. So this differs from cases where this court has found no, um, no prejudice, such as Clark, um, where there was the cautionary instruction. There was no live testimony and no reference in closing. And in Farden, where the other offenses were just simply not presented with a, a sufficient detail to sway the verdict. Here, there was live dramatic testimony and the prosecutor used in closing. There's a reasonable possibility. Counsel, in the closing, though, um, I, is it true that the state told the jury in closing the following? You can't convict Smith in this case because of what he did on these other incidents, but you can use that information in understanding the role of the parties, understanding who's the boss and what the modus operandi. Is that Does that sound like an accurate quote? Because that sounds to me like it, the state actually laid out the use, how that evidence can be used appropriately. Tell me why I'm wrong. If the evidence is admissible, um, then there is nothing wrong with the state's argument. Um, but right now, in the question of whether there's prejudice in the case um, from a, an erroneous admission, the fact that the prosecutor relied on it in closing argument is relevant because that makes it more likely that the jury will focus on it in deliberations. Mr. Smith was also prejudiced by the trial court's refusal to grant a short continuance after the state disclosed about 74 hours of jail calls just six days before trial. The defense had requested these calls on June 29th of 2017, and they were not disclosed to the defense until December 27th of 2017. Well, actually, counsel, they were disclosed electronically, but defense counsel didn't notice them until December 27th, isn't that right? They were disclosed on 27th. Um, defense counsel didn't notice them until the 28th. All right. Um, whether it's the 27th or the 28th, I'm trying to figure out the chronology here. Okay. And it looks to me like jury selection ended on Friday, January 5th, and the trial actually got going on Monday, January 8th. So you've got 
by your calculation, December 28 to January 8, which would be what, 11 days? Correct. To have to for the uh, public defender's office to listen to 75 hours of calls. Yes, but that would include time while the primary attorneys in the case who would have the insight into whether any of the calls were relevant were, in, were picking a jury and preparing for testimony in a first-degree murder case. I'm, I'm not in any way minimizing the enormous workload that the public defender's office has. Um, and I recognize this is over the holidays as well. But isn't it fair to say that if if these calls were at least thought to be potentially important, that there could have been some routine to review review them before the trial started? Well, I would agree with that, which is why the, um, the trial team was able to get through eight hours of the tapes. Um, and as someone who has listened to jail call tapes um, on prior occasions, I can tell you that it's not just a matter of sitting there for eight hours. Um, the calls are sometimes grainy, you have to, you know, rewind and, and go back through it. So 74 hours is not a mere 74 hours of sitting through tapes. It might have taken 30 hours to get through the eight hours that they did. Um, and it's really a testament to their diligence that they were able to do that. Have the uh, recordings now been reviewed? The recordings have, um, yes, by someone in my office, yes. I didn't see anything in the brief identifying any important evidence that was disclosed by that review. Is that because this wouldn't be the procedural posture to do that in, or is it because there just wasn't anything else there? Um, I feel like I shouldn't talk about things outside the record, but I, I don't believe that it would be the correct procedural posture okay, to do that. Okay, I understand. Yes. The state clearly committed a discovery violation by disclosing the 74 hours of tapes too close to trial for the defense to investigate. Rule 9 requires that prosecutors shall allow access to all matters within the prosecutor's possession that relate to the case, and that does extend to officers investigating the case. In this case, um, the- Counsel, if I may, uh, remind me again, when did you first request the tapes? The tapes were requested in June of 2017, on June 29th of 2017, and they were received December 27th of 2017. And is there anything in the record about what caused the delay, and maybe this is a better question for Ms. Burdoff, but um, what, what caused that long delay in, in getting the tapes? It is unknown what caused the delay. What we do know is that there were um, investigative reports um, written about some of the tapes um, back in February. Um, so the police investigators certainly had them. Um, for whatever reason, the calls did not make their way to the county attorney's office. When fashioning a remedy for a discovery violation, the court must consider four factors. Um, why the disclosure was not made, the extent of prejudice to the opposing party, the feasibility of rectifying the prejudice with a continuance, and any other relevant factors. Here, the court abused its discretion by failing to consider any of those factors. If it had considered those factors, it almost certainly would have granted a motion for a continuance, um, and it would have rectified the prejudice. The court also abused its discretion by denying the continuance on grounds that the calls were not independently admissible. The court is making a critical um, mistake there. It, it doesn't matter if discovery is admissible 
um, discovery extends to items that can lead to admissible information. So the defense in this case, if it had had the information that directly undercut the state's theory in this case, um, prior to um, more than six days before trial, the defense could have investigated that. The defense could have found witnesses to testify um, about that information, but the defense simply didn't have an opportunity to do so. Counsel, um, recognizing that the standard of review here is always an issue on these kinds of problems, can you point me to, or what, what case or authority would you point me to that would support why um, it was an abuse of discretion here? It is an abuse of discretion not to follow the law, and the right. law, as um, stated in Lindsay, is that the court needs to consider the four Lindsay factors. And you think Lindsay is the strongest argument for your position here? I, I think um, either way, it's a strong argument. I believe that there was a very clear discovery violation here, um, given the fact that the um, the calls were disclosed um, six months after they were requested, even though the police officers had them. Um, but even if this is considered a, a straightforward um, continuance request, um, the court abused its discretion um, in that way too, because the court didn't consider the factors that this court has made clear in Beveridge and in Lloyd um, for granting a continuance. If the court had considered those factors, it would have granted a continuance. So is it your, is it your position that the, the district court violated the law by taking into account the, the likelihood that much of this evidence would be inadmissible hearsay? I mean, can, can a district court judge take that into account in considering all the facts and circumstances as to whether a continuance should be granted? I think that the court can consider whether evidence, um, if, if the defense, for example, had said, um, I want to review all these tapes because I want to admit these tapes, and there was no way that these tapes were coming in without witnesses, without additional investigation, it would have been an appropriate um, ruling at that point um, to say, to deny the continuance based upon the fact that this evidence was not going to come in. But what the court did was um, prevent the defense from investigating information it had that it got at the very last minute that directly undercut the state's theory in the case. The state's theory in the case is that um, Mr. Smith's participation here is um, he is the person who calls the shots. He's the leader of this group. Um, they got information in that tape that it was actually Mr. Patterson who was the one calling the shots. The defense should have had an opportunity to investigate that information to determine if they could have gotten that evidence in. The court's um, ruling deprived them of the ability to do that. And uh, the original motion for continuance, how much of a continuance requested? Four days. And then it was, what, five days later that the court denied the renewed motion? That's correct. So by requesting a continuance of four days, let's see, that motion was made on what day? The second. The second. So the, the, um, the defense wanted the trial to start not on January, well, the tr the tr for the jury selection to start not on January 2, but on January 6, which I think would have been a weekend. So 
jury selection start on the 8th. Instead, it started on the 2nd. Am I, correct. do I have the chronology right? That's correct. So it would have taken four days to review the tapes? Uh, that was their estimate that it would have taken them four days to review the tapes and then conduct any needed investigation. And does the record tell us after the district court denied the initial motion for continuance whether efforts were made to further review the tapes? Yes, and that is how... They got um, through eight hours? That's how they got through eight hours and found the information that undercut um, the state's theory in this okay. case. Thank you. Mr. Smith was prejudiced by the court's refusal to grant a four-day continuance. A criminal defendant has got a right to a to competent representation, and competent representation includes um, sufficient time to prepare a defense. When the denial of a continuance deprives a defendant of, um, deprives counsel of representation, um, the conviction must be reversed. The prejudice here was that the defense did not have time to investigate the information in the call uh, that identified Mr. Patterson as being the ringleader. If Mr. Patterson is the ringleader in this offense, um, then Mr. Smith really has no role in the offense. It'd be very difficult for the state to prove that he had a role in the defense. The state suggests that we can't show prejudice um, because we haven't supplemented the record with more information. But this court has never imposed such a burden um, when the issue is uh, preserved below. It's really impractical to expect um, the defense counsel, while in the midst of a jury trial, a first-degree murder jury trial, um, to continue to investigate after they've lost this motion. Here, the prejudice was clear. Um, the defense received information contrary to the state's theory, and they were unable to capitalize on it. Mr. Smith's convictions must be reversed. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. You have five minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Burdorf. May it please the court, counsel, my name is Jean Burdorf. I'm an assistant Hennepin County attorney and I represent the respondent state of Minnesota. I'll start with the accomplice corroboration issue. I dis disagree uh, with Ms. Martin's recitation of what the law is on adequate corroboration for accomplice testimony. Um, I do agree that the corroboration has to restore confidence in the accomplice's testimony and that has to be in a substantial way. I do not agree that the law requires that the corroborative evidence directly implicate the defendant in the crime. This court's case law holds that the corroborative evidence does not establish, have to establish a prima facie um, case of guilt, and that's essentially what Ms. Martin is arguing. So I, did, I disagree about her recitation of the law. Um, you've talked about a number of the pieces of corroborative evidence. I'll just detail them quickly. I do think that the other crimes evidence was proper corroboration uh, because it did demonstrate um, joint participation between Derek Smith, Tyrell Patterson, and Brandy Jakes in both crimes. And so I do think that is a piece of corroborative evidence. You have the surveillance video. Was there evidence that um, there was a relationship like the video at the gas station and some of the phone records sure. that showed there was a relationship anyway. So why did you need the Scott County to, to show that? I mean, I, what do you say to the defense's argument that that relationship evidence was there anyways? It seems like what you're doing is throwing in other bad acts evidence to convict the guy in that crime, frankly. Certainly, um, I think that there was other evidence that they knew each other, like the surveillance videotape um, and some of the 
call history between the people, so certainly that they knew each other. I think that the other crimes evidence from Scott County and from the incident six hours before the um, murder. I just want to focus on Scott County. So why, why do you need that additional evidence? Because I think it's the because strongest Because the case evidence. is weak? I mean, basically what the argument is, mm -hmm. state has a weak case, so we can bring in evidence of other crimes that is prejudicial to support a weak state case. That I, I mean, and maybe that's what the law is, I don't know, but that always strikes me as really stupid. Wow, um, uh, I guess I'm gonna disagree that it's stupid, um, and I am gonna uh, respectfully urge well, you. Counsel, it seems like it's the state gets to try its case and make its decisions about how you're gonna put in your case, and it's up to the district court judge to make a decision about whether it's prejudicial or not, which is what we're here to review. That is true. Um, the way but that, that, is a, that is the essence of the argument, though. My case is weak, and so I need to bring in other evidence of on relationship, although I don't necessarily agree with that. So I need to bring in other evidence, which is this other bad acts, which is prejudicial. There's no question that it, it can have a prejudicial effect on a jury to support a weak case by the state. I mean, that is the, that's essentially the theory. Well, I, I'm gonna finesse that theory a little bit if you uh, bear with me, which is I don't, I, th I think that that's the argument that defense attorneys make at the district court level and I'm used to it. So this is what I say in response, and I will give you the same response, which is we are assessing probative value of other crimes evidence, and we are weighing that against not the danger of prejudice, because all evidence the state puts in, hopefully, if it's relevant, is prejudicial. So what we're balancing it against is the danger of unfair But if it's prejudice. evidence of, a, of the actual crime, it's, it, it's prejudicial in a different way. It's just prejudicial because you committed the, this particular crime. But if it's evidence of another bad act, it's prejudicial in a different way because there's the potential that you could be convicting someone of the crime you're charged with because of this other evidence, right? So it's prejudicial in a different way. I would disagree with that respectfully, and here's why. And I'm not, I understand the point you're trying to make. I do think it's prejudicial because it is harmful and it points to guilt if it's used properly. I guess where I differ is I don't think that it's necessarily unfairly prejudicial in a case if property... Counsel, let me talk about the specifics of one of these uh, bad acts. And I'm, I'm a little troubled by the, um, by, by the reference to the police officer shooting. I, I mean, um, you know, you talk about conceivably uh, leaving the jury in a position where they might be convicting the defendant of some other crime. Um, boy, it's hard to get m much further down the road than with that piece of evidence. So why isn't that a problem? A couple things. Um, that is virtually identical to what happened in the Nelson case that this court decided in 2001. In Nelson, you had a first degree murder and there were two Spriegel incidents that were admitted. Both were robberies involving the same participants. And so the theory of admitting the, the Spriegel evidence was the same as the theory here and I've relied on Nelson extensively in my brief. The, in one of those Spriegel incidents, so it showed joint participation, that's why the two robberies, one of them was in New Mexico, one of them was in a nearby city, um, in one of those incidents, I think it was the one in New Mexico, as one of the co-defendants was fleeing the scene of that Spriegel robbery, turned and fired and shot at the police. And the issue was argued before this court that that was too prejudicial to have been validly admitted as other crimes evidence. And what this court said about that in Nelson is it certainly demonstrated 
further his culpability in that Spriegel robbery and would have refuted any claim a defendant tried to make that he was just an innocent bystander or somehow acted under duress in that Spriegel incident. So that's the first thing I would say about the, the flight from the Scott County murder is that that really is indistinguishable from a Spriegel case this court affirmed in Nelson. Um, the second thing I would say, and this really is a, about the sanitizing point, and I, I apologize, I can't recall who asked the question about that. Um, that does happen in my county. When we have Spriegel motions um, and, and a district court admits, we do have defense attorneys as a practical matter say, okay, I understand that you're admitting three, you know, three different incidents. Is there a way we can cull some of the details? I don't think that it was an abuse of discretion for the district court not to do that. I think those details provided context for Mr. Smith's behavior in that Spriegel incident, but certainly that's something that could have happened that wasn't requested. I guess to me that's more of a practical argument because I see that practice in the county where I... And, and, and let me ask about one other, um, one other Spriegel point that you make, and that is relative to um, your defense of the um, evidence regarding the gun. Uh, when I've seen that evidence in Spriegel cases before, it usually identifies the weapon, a similar weapon. Here, it strikes me what we've got is at most um, common use of a revolver. Um, is that really enough uh, to, um, to, to, for admission purposes here, for Spriegel purposes? Given, given the ubiquity, as opposing counsel argues, of uh, that particular kind of weapon? Um, I think, first of all, I, I, I think the facts are a little bit more compelling than just the common use of a revolver because it's the use of a revolver six hours and in the same location as a revolver is used to murder someone. So I think there's some, some temporal... Timing matters here. Yeah, timing matters, and I think that there's some temporal connection. I would also say, though, that the cases I cited in my brief, Campbell involves mace, Barrett involves a gun. In Barrett, my recall is that the possession of that gun was 10 days before the crime charge. So I, I think even in a case like Barrett, it would probably still have some legitimate probative force, even if there had been greater times. But here we have six hours, same location. To me, that value of that gun is not just to show that he had access to a revolver, but since he was never alleged to have been the shooter in the murder, that it, it, it strikes me that the logical inference that the prosecutor asked the jury to make there is he's the one who had the revolver initially, he must have given it to uh, Tyrell Patterson who ultimately shot the murder victim in this particular case. So I think that's the reasonable set of inferences the prosecutor was entitled to argue and did argue in this well, case. Counsel, I wanna go back to something you said earlier that you and opposing counsel disagreed on the standard for corrobor corroborating testimony, yes. corroborating evidence. Um, in your brief, you cite State versus Rasmus in a case from 1954 that says that the evidence need not establish a prima facie case of the defendant's guilt, mm -hmm. but it must in some substantial degree tend to affirm the truth of the accomplice's testimony and point to the guilt of the defendant. Yes. W would you agree that's the law? I would agree that that's the law. Right. And I think the I didn't, I didn't understand, I didn't understand opposing counsel to be making any different argument than that. And, and perhaps I misheard her, what I, what I heard because essentially my view of the corroborative evidence in this case is that uh, Ayan Wahab told what happened 
from this time to this time. And there was corroborative details basically that tracked all the way up through when she disposed of the gun. Some of it is surveillance, some of it is phones, some of it um, is relations ev evidence. We've talked about that. The, really that telephone call that was inadvertently, that's very close in time to the murder. I see that as a very strong piece of corroborative evidence, but there was no single piece of corroborative evidence that could say um, Derek Smith knew that that shooting was gonna happen during that robbery. That was the, the only evidence at that moment, at the time of the murder, really was Ayan Wahab saying he was inside that house, he had planned this robbery, he knew what was going down when Tyrell Patterson came out of the house and shot the victim. And so what I, I guess I was hearing and perhaps mishearing is the idea that that single fact needed direct corroboration. So, so you, you would acknowledge that there isn't sufficient evidence outside of Wahab's testimony to make a prima facie case of the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? Yes, I don't. I think you need Ayan Wahab's testimony to, to, to find Derek Smith guilty. And I, I guess, and maybe we don't disagree about the law. I just wanted to make that very narrow point that I don't think that you have to have corroborative evidence on every single point of Ayan Wahab's testimony to have restored faith in the, in the truthfulness of what she told the jury. Um, I'd is like the, to- Is the defense counsel correct that if the Spriegel evidence is inadmissible, that you're not arguing that it's harmless? Yes. Okay. Um, I would like to go back, Justice Tisa Fadai, to, to the question really you had about um, probative value. I relied on Nelson, I relied on Clark in my brief for why the Scott County murder in particular was um, probative and irrelevant. I wanted to go back to your question about need. And really, need under Ness is part of what makes it probative. If the, if the state is, has a case like we had here, I mean, and you heard Ms. Martin very eloquently argue we didn't have very good evidence. Now, I might disagree with that, but certainly we had the primary evidence in this case was from an accomplice. And so already that is suspect testimony. We had no physical evidence linking. We had a lot of circumstantial evidence linking Derek Smith to the circumstances surrounding this murder. Um, and so in that kind of case where the state needs the other crimes evidence to meet its burden of proof, that doesn't mean it's impermissible. It actually means that it's more probative. And I may be just a Justice Strauss adherent on this whole issue. Um, I, I, well, I, anyway, I mean, just, this is the argument that we had following up on Ness and, mm -hmm. and in the, you know, in subsequent cases where Justice Strauss took a different position on that, about what the common scheme and plan really ought to mean. And it just does seem like, well, well go ahead. But I mean, th there was relationship evidence here though. I mean, you're, you're saying that it was, it was there. You had the videotape. You had the, you had the phone calls being made. You had, you know, I, I just. Certainly, but the relationship evidence that was there was, could have been. I mean, this is how I look at this balancing, is I think to myself, what would this case have looked like without the Scott County murder in it? What would have it looked like? And you would have had an argument that said, sure, I was at SA, but I know him. I didn't dispute I was SA. You didn't see us doing anything criminal at SA. And sure, I might have been at Brandy Jake's house kind of around the time of this murder, but I wasn't outside and I didn't know what was happening. Um, and so the value, the probative value of that other crime's evidence is it really does it is pretty compelling evidence 
that this group of three people, Brandy Jakes, Tyrell Patterson, and Derek Smith, were actively participating with each other in sort of this criminal enterprise. And that is, the, is sort of the value. That's what Nelson, But that's see, that, that's, the, that's the issue, because what, what you're saying is that it's likely they committed this crime, which we don't really have very good evidence about, because they also committed that crime. And that that's is, the argument. That's actually not what I'm saying. So if that's what it sounded like, I, I apologize, because that isn't what I am attempting to say. What I'm trying to say is that is the relationship, that they coordinate, that they act together. And at first, I want to say, I don't think that your case law treats Clark and Nelson as common scheme and plan cases. To me, I read those as sort of a separate exception to, to Spriegel and a, another valid reason to admit other crimes evidence. So all of the arguments, I mean, I looked at Clark and um, Nelson this morning, those cases, when you look at the facts of the Spriegel incidents and the murders in those cases, I don't think that they are any more markedly similar than the Scott County murder and the Hennepin County murder in this particular case. Counsel, so let, me, think, let, let me pick up on your argument that these three people together were essentially a robbery crew. And that was the state's theory of the case, wasn't it? It was that they were joint participants yeah. in both offenses. Really, the, the way that it got argued was, one, they did argue common scheme and plan, which was one of the stated purposes that they put it in for and the judge admitted it for, but also, it was really to refute this notion that Derek Smith was just a mere bystander. Sure. And I mean, not an the state's theory of the case was these three were thick as thieves. And so then why, why did it take so long to turn over the 75 hours of recorded calls for, for, that involved all three of them? Why, why did it take so long? And is will, there anything in the record explaining that? I will move to the continuance argument. Um, first of all, I want to make sure that we're really clear about what the facts are. There, what the defense requested in June, the six months before the trial, were telephone calls referenced in a police report, which is part of this record, that were made by Brandy Jakes and Tyrell Patterson from the Scott County Jail in December of, I think it's 2016, I'm going to hazard a guess as to the year. So that was the calls that they were looking for, and it did take too long and the prosecutor acknowledged that it took too long. And what there is in, what information is in the record is this, that the police took too long to give it to the prosecutor and that when the prosecutor got those telephone calls, he immediately turned them over to the defense. 11 days before trial. Not 11 days before trial. If you read transcript page 14, what you hear the prosecutor say is that he actually disclosed those tapes the week before last. So if you go back in a calendar, like I did, you will see that that's really the week of December 18th to 22nd of that year. So that's when those calls were transferred from the Hennepin County Attorney's Electronic Case Management System to the Hennepin County Public Defender. They, they just weren't noticed by the public defender? Pardon? They weren't noticed by the public defender? There's nothing in the record that explains why the public defender didn't see them till December I think he said it was the 27th and then he started listening to him the 28th. There is no explanation in the record for that period of time. So um, maybe in a big law firm, you'd throw a bunch of associates on the task of listening to 75 hours of calls, knowing that it will take more than 75 hours because they're scratchy, you're gonna have to go back and listen, you have to listen to the people talking in code and try to figure out what they're talking about. It's a big job. So. Uh, in the meantime, we've got public defenders who have hundreds of cases. I mean, 
they're every bit of information is that they are burdened immensely, causing enormous stress. So why shouldn't, why wasn't an abuse of discretion for the judge to give them four days to listen to all these calls of three co-conspirators? Well, actually, again, I wanna make sure that I'm very precise about what was in the calls. It's two co-conspirators and the defendant himself. And presumably the defendant was never intending to listen to his own calls because he knows what he said already while he was talking to people from jail. So there's two co-defendant calls. Um, I will say this. But it will take time. I mean, I don't, I don't buy that argument. You, just because the defendant knows what he says, doesn't counsel need to know what he said on these recordings? Certainly, but he isn't gonna be able to get those tapes in. So, I, and I'm not, I, I, I wanna get to your point about really the 70 hours of tapes. I did listen to the eight hours of tapes that the defense listened to before trial in this particular case, and it didn't take me 30 hours. Um, and I have had the experience of listening to jail calls and lots of them. And I agree, sometimes you have to go back, but I also um, wish to emphasize, and if you've listened to Court Exhibit 1A, you will see that the vast majority of the conversations have nothing to do with this case. And so you aren't spending 30 hours transcribing those and listening to those. So that's just a very small point and a very narrow point about the nature of the work. I will say this also about the practice in Hennepin County is that it is 75 hours. The defense only asked for four days to listen to them. So that was their estimate about how long they needed to do that. They had actually more resources in some ways than the prosecutors had for this particular trial. They had an investigator and a paralegal who were both assigned to this case. Um, if this had been the prosecutor, I assure you that the district court would have expected us to delegate the responsibility of listening to jail calls to subordinates in our office. And that's fine. That is what the district court expectation is for the parties, at least in the county I practice in. The fact that Council, the Council isn't one of the practical, um, the practicalities, unfortunately, is that it wouldn't be as simple as granting a four-day continuance. The four-day continuance would be ultimately be several months of continuance because of the court's calendaring, because they already have other cases scheduled and they don't just have the ability to kick the rest of them. I uh, agree with your assessment of what the ripple effect would be in Hennepin County. That wasn't put on the record, but as a practical matter, that is probably the case. You are probably, when we continue big cases like this, they, are they tend to be the ones that get date and certain, and it probably would, as a practical matter, have been moved a couple months. Which Count, is can I, I, I just wanna go back to this Frigo yeah. for a minute. Could you Certainly. just articulate for us, what is the common plan or scheme I think the common planner scheme is that there are two murders close in time in relatively close proximity to one another that involved three of the same participants. In each particular case, you have a woman involved in the situation at Ion Wahab and Brandy Jakes in the Scott County murder who were essentially used as a ruse or means to get access to the victim. Um, then you also have uh, Mr. Smith who is planning both, and he did plan the robbery uh, of Robert Ambers in this case. He did participate in the planning in the Scott County case. He handed out masks, he had the backpack, he had maps that he'd gotten from Brandy Jake. So I do think that there is a leadership role for Derek Smith in both. Uh, Tyrell Patterson is the shooter in both cases. Um, and the purpose it's of both robberies to, was to, you know, after having gotten access to the victims, to steal drugs and money from both. So I think that that is the articulation of the common scheme and plan. And I recognize that there are 
differences between the offenses, but I don't think this court's case law requires identical circumstances. But it's sort of a crime spree, common scheme, if you will. Yes. There's not an argument that the, that the, that the motive for one was to cover up the other or something like that. There is not. Um, I do want to go. Counsel, if you, if I may, I want to go back to the, the continuance issue just briefly. And this is, uh, well, you had indicated that the police officers held on to the, to the tapes for too long before getting it to the prosecutors. But I'm assuming that the, the request for the, the tapes was made to your office. Or where was, where was the request initially made? The discovery was re request was made to my office. Unfortunately, the record does not reflect when my office um, made the request of police. I know what it is. It's not part of your record. But what the record does contain is that, and you see this in all of the different components of this argument, you, all of the defense attorneys agreed that this was not the fault of the prosecutor, the delay. Well, what I'm trying to get at is, well, it, isn't a, wasn't, it wasn't incumbent upon the police to send it to you. It was incumbent upon your office to ask for the tapes from the police, right? And so again, when you I say the police took too long, I'm trying to figure out, well, wh who dropped the ball in there? I want to be careful about not referring to facts outside the record. So what I'm going to say is, is this one. First of all, I'm not sure that it matters for discovery purposes. We are responsible for the actions of the police. They're considered state actors. So when Mr. Allard, the trial attorney here, was asked, was there a discovery violation because it took too long to get those Scott County tapes, he said yes. What he said was, I am not the person who caused the delay. The defense attorneys agreed with that, that it was not Mr. Allard that caused the delay. And then he said, but I recognize that my responsibility is the prosecutor, that I'm responsible for the conduct of police. So there was a discovery violation. I think the, the question is, is what is the material prejudice for me on the, on the prong? And what I, I want to make a couple points about what's on these tapes. Um, they are hearsay statements from co-defendants. I don't think that there's any real reasonable argument that those would have been independently admissible. Both had valid Fifth Amendment privileges and couldn't be called but as is witnesses. is the defense right that it's not just whether they're admissible, but whether they could lead to admissible evidence? I mean, aren't they right about that? They are right about that, and I wanted to address that point, which That's is, probably the more important point to address. It is. They had, uh, as early as the case was charged, when they received the police reports shortly after the case was charged, they knew summaries of the content of those statements. They knew who Brandy Jakes and Tyrell Patterson were talking to. Was so, there something in the tapes, as the defense counsel says, that would suggest perhaps that Patterson was the ringleader and not Smith? Uh, I think I would not interpret the word. Would someone that, interpret it that way? A defense attorney could and a prosecutor would disagree. But, the but large, a jury could then. Certainly, but I also want to tell you that's one isolated statement from these jail calls, again, inadmissible hearsay, but there's a lot of other statements in these jail calls, things where that suggest Brandy Jakes was the shooter, that other people were involved, that, uh, that maybe duress might be a good defense. There's all sorts of different nuggets of information, good for the prosecution, perhaps good for the defense in these telephone calls. Oh, I see my time is up. My okay. uh, can she finish sure. this? Thank you. Sure. Okay. I mean, it seems like what you're just now saying is that there's other information that would not say Smith was the ringleader, that Brandy Jakes did the shooting that is different than the state's theory. Right. And my, but my, my point about the jail calls is this. None of that information would have been admissible. But it could have led to admissible evidence. 
Right, but if Brandy, I mean, if Brandy Jakes is having a conversation with someone and she says, hey, will you make sure to tell that person to stop putting on Facebook that I was the shooter? That, for instance. That, there's two people in that conversation, Brandy Jakes and the listener. The information is concrete. It is not gonna be independently admissible because Brandy Jakes had a Fifth Amendment privilege and the listener to that telephone call wouldn't be able to testify about the contents of the call. And we make the assumption that she would exercise that privilege for sure? There's nothing in the record about whether she would or wouldn't. What is in the record is that she would Well, as a legal matter, can we make that presumption? That she, I, well, I guess what I will say is- Is there any case law or authority that would say we should make that assumption? I'm unaware of case law that really speaks to that issue either way. I guess the point I'm really trying to make about the, the calls that are known is this. None of them would have been ind independently ad in admissible and that investigating them would have been possible without the calls because the participants to the calls were known. The, that's just the point I wanted to make about that particular thing. I apologize for going so far over that's my right. time. Thank you, uh, counsel. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Martin, you have five minutes for rebuttal. to address a point made about um, Spriegel and the need for Spriegel evidence. Um, the Spriegel evidence must be relevant to a disputed fact of consequence. So it's not sufficient that the state's case is weak in the abstract. Um, the court should do a searching inquiry to determine whether the um, the act, the Spriegel Act that is being admitted, specifically relates to a weak point in the case. So if the Scott County murder, for example, is going to be admitted, it needs to relate to something. It does not show the association between the parties when in the two offenses, the association between the, the, the roles of the parties are different. It might show that they are three people that do things together, um, but it does nothing to suggest that Mr. Smith played a leadership role or that he was the one calling the shots in the Hennepin case. Um, in Nelson, the purpose of admitting the evidence um, was not um, simply for common scheme or plan. Nelson made clear that the purpose of admitting that evidence was to rebut the, um, the defense that he was merely an innocent bystander in that case. Again, the Spriegel um, evidence needs to be relevant in order to be admissible. And in this case, it simply wasn't. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.